Now, today we finished a series, and I'm hoping something's resonating with you a little bit. If you have a friend or somebody you know, and they ask you the question, are you a Christian? One of the side results that I hope happens out of this series is that you will pause when you hear that question. And that your first inclination, your first answer, isn't automatically yes. That you actually, in your brain, say, wait a second, Christian, that's a term that's only used a couple times in the Bible, and the term Christian is never defined in the Bible, and it was actually a derogatory term in the beginning that people used of looking at the church, and and Christian is something that people just kind of have used to say, well, I can kind of believe in the Bible, I can believe what I want, and do what I want, and a Christian is, because it's not defined in the Bible, it can mean whatever I want it to mean. And so I'm hoping if someone asks, are you a Christian, that you pause and say, well, actually, I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's just one of the things I hope comes out of this series is that you pause because Christian isn't defined in the Bible. But Jesus and other New Testament authors give us a clear picture of what a disciple of Jesus is, what a follower of Jesus is, because that's what they referred to themselves as in the first century. That's what Jesus referred to his followers as. He didn't call them Christians. He called them disciples. The difference between a Christian and a disciple is a Christian, it's more about what you believe. But a disciple, it's more about your behavior. Belief versus behavior. And right before Jesus left, he, he, he made this concept and idea uh, clear to us, and he talked about it, and it's a, he said this. He said, John chapter 13, verse 35, he said, By this, everyone will know that you are my what? You are my disciples, that was the term Jesus used, you are my disciples if you love one another. Not simply what you believe, not simply that you come to church on a Sunday morning, but but how you actually treat others. That's a defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. Not so much what you believe, but how you treat one another. Now, let me ask you a question. Who here likes to win? Who likes to win, right? Who, Who here likes to lose? You know, I'm sorry for the Cleveland Browns and others, you know, who just kind of, that's kind of been your thing, right? So, so we like to win. Everybody likes to win. Well, this morning, I want to help you win. Interesting, I had someone uh, uh, text me uh, this week, and they, they asked me, hey, they, they don't attend our church, but they listen to the, uh, they're out of the area, and they listen or watch our, our video of the sermon or podcast, and they said, hey, I, I was listening to the sermon this week, I love the sermon, but did anybody take you up on your offer to play you in basketball? And I thought about it, I was like, geez, not a single person took me up, no, why? Because nobody wanted to lose. If you weren't here last week, you got to watch or listen to, to understand the, the reference. Did you know that there are specific winning ways when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus? Do you know that? The, the, and my hope this morning is I want to help you win with how it is that you treat those who are inside the church and how it is you act and react and treat those who are outside the church. Because the Bible talks about this, and the Bible tells us and gives us a picture of the winning ways, the winning attitude, the winning behaviors of of people who are a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And what we're going to discover 
that the winning ways of loving people in the church is actually a little different than the winning ways of loving people outside the church. So to help us with this, let me, let me kind of like get us, keep us rolling here. I want to take us back to something Jesus said right before he left the earth. And right before he left, he gave all of us here, our, his disciples, he gave us our marching orders. And these orders sort of set the tone and the pace for where we're headed today. It's one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. We often call it the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus is about to leave, and, and he's there on the mountainside with all his disciples, and he says this, Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore, go and make Christians. Is that what he said? He said, go and make Disciples, there's the word again, right? That, that, that's the word Jesus used because a disciple is somebody literally means to cause someone to become a follower. It's all about following. It's all about behavior to cause someone to become a follower. He said, go make disciples of who? Was this meant to be just for a select group of people, a small group of people? No, no, Jesus says, go make disciples. What's the word? Of? Of all nations, all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That was the marching orders. And guess what? Jesus left the earth, and then his disciples, they started doing it. That's how they started living. That's how they started acting. They began to live in such a way and to teach in such a way that people were drawn to being a Jesus follower. And a group of disciples, this group, this small group of 100-some-odd people, it grew and grew, and grew, and grew, and everything went basically pretty darn good for about 300 years. And after 300 years, miraculously, Christianity was adopted by Rome as the official religion of the empire. And now when Christianity became the official religion, that's when things went bad. Why? I'll give you a, a quick history here. Some of you might know, know what happened. Why did it all, it was, went pretty good for 300 years. And then from there on, it started to go bad. Why? Because the church decided to leverage something other than love. If you were with us last week, we talked about leveraging love. See, loving others was the trademark of Christianity for the first 300 years. Leveraging love. And we talked about and we said that anytime you or I, the church, anytime we leverage something other than love, we lose and the world loses. Because Jesus said the one thing that's going to cause other people to know that you, the church, are my followers is how you love. So I want you to leverage love, how you love each other. And then as you round out the New Testament teaching, you see it's how you love each other in the church, but also how you love those who are outside the church. But once the church got the power they decided, we're not going to lever leverage love anymore. We're going to leverage some other things. And so after the church got the power, this Matthew chapter 28 passage, what we call the Great Commission, it actually, if you know history, you might, res you might understand this, the Great Commission started to sound a little more like this. Therefore, go and make disciples by imposing my teachings, values, and worldview on all nations, threatening them, with judgment and destruction if they don't do everything I have commanded you. For those who know history, is that pretty accurate? Is that kind of what the church started to do? They lost sight of what Jesus wanted them to leverage. 
And yet, those first few hundred years, the world was one spiritually because a group of disciples understood something. They understood that their goal was to win others, not to impose their values on others. To win other people, not to threaten people with something. In fact, that's how the Apostle Paul described living out Jesus' words. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And then uh, in a few moments, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 5. So this is where we're going to be the, rest, the remainder of the morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to notice what Paul says here. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, here's how he describes what we're talking about. He said, Though I am free, and I belong to no one, I have made myself a what? I have made myself a a slave to who? To everyone. In other words, I don't get all high and mighty. I don't get judgmental. I don't impose. I just make myself a humble slave to everyone. Why? Why was Paul willing to do that? He's free. He do whatever he want, be whatever he want. Why was he willing to do that? Notice what he goes on to say. Here's why I made myself a humble slave. Here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, to what? And here's the word. To, let's say it together. I did this. I made myself a slave to what? What's the word? To? To? One more time. To? To win as many people as possible. That's what the Bible says. That's our call, to win as many as possible to, to Christ. Win means to acquire by our effort. And he goes on in verses 20 through 23 in this passage, and he kind of di dives into it a little deeper. And he's like, listen, here's how, what I'll do. I'm going to win. I'm going to be a humble servant, so I'm going to do whatever I can to win people. And if that means, you know, I've got to become a Jew to reach the Jews, I'll do it. If I have to become like the Gentiles to reach the Gentiles, I'll do it. If that means I have to become like this weak person, I'll do that. If I have to be strong, I'll be strong. I'll do whatever it takes in my effort to win disciples. Why are you doing that, Paul? Well, because Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world. And I want you to cause people to become my followers. That's what disciples means, to cause people to become a follower. And the way that you do that, the best way is to win them. To invite them. Never to impose them. Impose upon them. To win them over to your side. Years ago, when we started the church, and, and I had a little home office there, and, and had my computer, and diving into the church, and doing all that, and bought this computer, and, you know, it was like this 20-pound computer, and, and, you know, you plug it in, because it had like a 20-minute battery life, and all that, you guys remember that 15 years ago, what computers were like, and you had to have a backpack to carry it around, and everything, so I had this computer, and and because we had to, you know, go places, and that was my, that was actually my first laptop, so I, I remember it distinctly, this Toshiba monster, and, and I remember as much time as I spent on sermons and starting the church and getting all that done, you know what else I distinctly remember? The hours and hours and hours I spent on the phone with tech support. The hours and hours and hours trying to get the computer to work right and the software to work right and the virus protection this and the virus that and, and yeah, okay, buy another external hard drive and this and that and reboot and reset and this and that. I can distinctly remember that. And one day, uh, Fong came over to our house. This guy was in our small group, Fong, and he walked in with an Apple computer. 
And I remember he walked in with that thing, and it was like smaller and lighter and cool looking, and he just walked in. And in our small group over the next four weeks or so, five weeks, month, whatever the case may be, I was just in awe. And then I'd watch a commercial, and it was an Apple commercial. And Steve Jobs would be talking. And maybe you remember one of the slogans they had back then. And it was the slogan, three words. It just, anybody remember? It just, it just, anybody remember? It just works. And I was like, that's interesting, because mine never works. <laughs> and Fong with his computer and the way that thing worked, and what with, I remember pictures and, all, you know, the iPhone, all this stuff, and, and all of a sudden, it just works. They won me over, bought my first Mac, and I've drank the Kool-Aid ever since. <laughs> Pay crazy amount of money, right? Right? Some of you are like, that's crazy. Well, you know what? You know why I did it? Because it just, they won me over. They won me over. They didn't coerce me. They didn't threaten me. They didn't force me. They won me over because their product was better for me than the others. Think about your relationship, maybe with somebody. How did you win over their heart? Maybe some of you might even be the person sitting next to you. How did you win their heart? How did you win their heart? You made you the most desirable or attractive, right? Isn't that true? You made you more desirable or attractive than the competition, right? Isn't that what happened? Here's what you didn't do. You didn't walk up to that person. You look at them and said, you will marry me or else. <laughs> it didn't work that way. You don't win somebody's heart by imposing your will. Paul said, here's my relationship to those outside the Jesus community, and I want to win them. I want to win them. I'll do whatever I have to. I'll become whatever I have to to convince them that the Jesus way is a better way, that the Jesus way is a, you know, use business terms, a better product, that his way is worth giving your life to. Which was Paul's way of saying, I will not coerce them. I will not threaten them. I will not pressure them. Instead, I will win them. And that was the approach of Christianity for the first 300 years. But then the church, 300 years into it, decided, now nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to leverage power. We're going to leverage authority. And we're going to go from winning to threatening. We're going to go from winning to coercing. We're going to go from, you know, God is love to God's going to get you if you don't. And whenever we leverage anything other than love with each other and those outside our walls, we lose and the world loses. What I want to do right now is as we continue this and get a little deeper into it is show you where Paul teaches this very idea that we're talking about today. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to turn there. Let me give you a little background, a little context for what we're about to read here. Scholars tell us that, that uh, Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Now, in your Bible, what do you have in your Bible? How many Corinthians do you have? 
2, right? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Scholars tell us that's probably 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians is what we really have. So 2, you know, went missing or, or we don't have them anymore. So first thought. Second thought is this. Keep this in mind. As we think about what we're going to read here, Corinth, the city of Corinth, the people of Corinth, that environment, maybe the best way to think about it is picture, you know, Las Vegas maybe. Okay, or at least the stereotype of what Las Vegas is or at least used to be. It, it's, it, so Corinth, you know, what, sta- what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth type thing. It was a port city, and as a result, it was just this immoral city, and it was a, a pagan city, and it was a sexual city and a sensual city, and it had all of that going on with it. But secondly, this. Paul started this church there, and that church struggled And they struggled specifically with the conflicting morals and values of the Corinthian Greek, you know, the Greek Roman culture and what that looked like there versus this, you know, Christian way or this Judeo-Christian standards. And they struggled with kind of figuring it out. And today what we're doing for the next few minutes is we're dropping in to one of the most extreme examples of that struggle and that challenge. But in this, we're going to peek into how Followers of Jesus are called to interact and to treat and to address Jesus' followers as well as those who are not followers of Jesus. And Paul's actually really clear here, though this will be incredibly challenging for us. So here's how it begins. Paul heard that, that some stuff was going on in the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you which of course isn't good, but it's worse than that. It's, uh, there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagan Corinthians do not even tolerate. So first thing you need to understand is Paul's explaining something to us. He's saying, hey, look, everybody has standards. Everybody has their own moral standards. You have the Christian standards and the Christian values, and you have the pagan values, and everybody has them, right? And Paul's saying, what you guys are doing, what's going on in your church is so bad that it's even the low pagan standards of the Corinthians, even what this, what's going on, even they wouldn't do what's going on in your church. Oh my goodness, what's going on? You ready? Brace yourself. Verse 1. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. To which I hope we say, ugh. Now, now scholars believe that this guy hooked up with his dad's wife, not his mom, because if it was his real mom, you know, his blood birth mom, all that, Paul would have addressed it differently. Even with the low pagan Corinthian standards that they had, Even they thought what this guy was doing, this Jesus follower, even they thought what he was doing was totally wrong. By the way, the Greek language here indicates this wasn't a one-time thing. This was an ongoing thing. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? You're letting this go on? In fact, notice what it says about them and their attitude as a church towards this going on. Verse 2, it says this. Paul says, this is going on, and you guys are what? You are what about it? You are... You're proud? You're proud about this? You're a small church. Everybody knows each other. So this isn't like no one knows about this. Everybody in the church knows it. And everybody in the church is fine with this. It's not a problem to anybody. Paul goes on and says, listen, guys, verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into what? Rather than be prideful, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? 
over this. You, you, you have the exact opposite, wrong response as a Jesus follower. You should have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. This is not acceptable behavior as a Jesus follower. You should have put him out. Verse 3, Paul goes on and says, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way. Now check this out. Notice what he says. I'm with you in spirit, and here's what I've done. Paul says this. I have already passed. What's the word I've already passed? Judgment. In the name of our Lord Jesus as the one who's been doing this. I have already passed judgment. If you've been sleeping the whole sermon, that had to wake you up. Judgment? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Judgment? To which you all of a sudden wake up and you say, whoa, okay, Paul, hold on, time out. Paul, I, I need to teach you a little something about the Bible. See, the Bible tells us, Paul, you, thou shall not judge, right? To which Paul says, uh, I'm writing the Bible. <laughs> this is in the Bible. I'm writing it. Some of you caught that, thought it was funny. What does the Bible actually say about judging? We're not going to get deep into it this morning. It's, that's literally a topic unto itself, but we're broaching the subject today. The Bible doesn't tell us never to judge. The Bible tells us who to judge. The Bible doesn't tell us never to judge. The Bible tells us who to judge. And the Apostle Paul's like, if what you're saying is true about this disciple of Jesus, this Jesus follower, he's saying that I've passed judgment. And here's why I'm passing judgment. Because this guy is a disciple of Jesus, or at least he says he is, and he's in the Jesus community. And he signed on to be a disciple. And his behavior, not his beliefs, his beliefs might have been dialed in. But his behavior is out of whack with the behavior of a Jesus follower. In fact, even non-Jesus followers are laughing at his incredibly awful, lewd acts. He's a terrible witness for us Jesus followers. Why? Because of his belief? Who knows what his belief is? But because of his behavior. Then Paul says something that's a little startling to hear. Here's his judgment, verse 5. Hand this man over to who? Hand this man over to? Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's using a legal phrase. It actually means to, to give him custody. He says, I want you to make Satan this guy's custodian right now. In other words, if this guy's going to keep on having this behavior be a part of his life and he claims he's a Jesus follower, then it's not going to be part of our, our community. That's not acceptable. He's not going to be a part of our group while he's practicing that behavior. See, what the Apostle Paul knew, that some of us have learned the hard way, every one of us learns eventually, the Apostle Paul knew sin has consequences. Our sin, our sinful behavior has consequences to it. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, the wages of our sin, what we earn, what we deserve because of our sin is death. Now, we know, you know, that Paul's talking about spiritual death, but I think there's a double meaning a little bit here because the reality is every time we sin, isn't there a death of sorts? You maybe try something that you think is cool or fun or pleasurable. Others around you would say, don't go down that path, don't do that. And you think, no, this is good and this makes me feel good or whatever the case may be, and then eventually that turns into an addiction. There's a death of sorts. 
you get into a relationship and everybody around you says, man, I don't know about that relationship. You're like, no, this is good and it's great and it's wonderful. And everybody around you knows you's like that, man, this isn't a good fit. And what are you doing? And, and they're talking to you and you get into it and you think it's wonderful. And then it isn't. And you're like, man, I should have listened to them. There's a death of sorts. It doesn't matter, matter if you're a religious person or not. Every sin has a consequence. So the Paul, Apostle Paul say, man, Get this guy out of your fellowship. Look at verse 13. Expel the wicked man from above you. Why? It doesn't matter what he believes. It's all about his behavior. And if he's going to keep doing that, you need to get him out of the Jesus community. You need to get him out there and let sin run, you know, its course. So hopefully one day he'll come back and he'll repent because this isn't send him to hell. We're through with him. This is a, hey, we want them back, and let's figure the best way, the quickest way to get them back. And sometimes the best way is just, you know, send them out. So figure out that's not a good life. That's not the way to live. It's not a way to live outside of the Jesus community. And hopefully and prayerfully one day he'll come back and join the rest of us sinners and, and we can move forward. You want to win when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ. Winning ways in the church is we practice tough love when appropriate. We judge when appropriate. We lovingly confront and hold accountable Jesus followers' behavior when it doesn't line up to being a Jesus follower. And that's difficult in the modern context. We, that's a whole other sermon. It's difficult in the modern context to figure out what does that actually look like. Well, I can tell you just simply, it has to be in the context of a relationship. So I decided against an idea that the staff had, which was to post our expel you from this church next week. <laughs> we don't, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. But we have to figure this out. All right, so what about those outside the church? Real quickly, the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. See, that's the letter we lost. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. So so someone's thinking, oh, yeah, not to associate with them. Notice what he says. Not at all meaning the people of this world. In other words, he's not saying don't associate with those outside our community who are immoral or greedy. If, If you didn't associate with them, notice what he says. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. So you can't disconnect relationally from someone who's not a Jesus follower, Paul's saying. Besides, if you do that, you'll never be able to make disciples. So keep engaging with those outside the church. Of course we do that, because we're going to make disciples by winning them over, not imposing our standards upon them. Those inside the church, he said, verse 11, I'm writing to you, that he wanted to clarify because maybe they misunderstood. I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or swindler and all that. Do not even eat with such people. Are you getting this? You see what Paul's talking about? He's saying those outside our walls, we don't impose our our morals, our values on them. We're just going to love them by trying to meet them where they're at and win them to Christ by our love for them. Those inside the church, we lovingly, wisely help them, hold them accountable. He uses the word judge them. But we have no business judging those outside the church. In fact, he says, verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And what's the answer? Absolutely none of my business. Why? Because he says, verse 12, 
Are you not to judge those on the inside? God's going to judge those on the outside. In other words, Paul's saying, gang, we've got to do a better job. We've got to do a better job of working with each other, holding each other ac- accountable, and do a better job of laying off everybody else and expecting the world to hold to our standards. Because when we do that, we lose. It's why the world hates us, isn't it? Because we started leveraging judgment. We started leveraging coercing people. We started leveraging, you know, here's what the Bible says. Here's what, you know, we hold signs in places and we, we do all this stuff and the world looks at us like we're nuts and we're crazy. And God's saying, church, you love. And the way you, you're winning ways of loving those inside is you, hold, you call them on it. You hold them accountable to the Jesus standard. And that has to happen in the context of relationship. Lovingly, if you use this word, lovingly judge those on the inside in the modern context. For those outside, our winning ways are to lovingly win them to Christ. See the difference? It's different. Clearly different. And I think it's time for us as a church, as a church worldwide to stop forcing our values on those outside of our walls. Stop coercing. Stop judging. And love them by winning them to the incredible love of Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want to ask you the question and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What does that look like for you? Maybe you have someone that you're in a relationship with and you just haven't been brave enough to have a conversation. You're not looking to beat them up, but there's somebody in your small group, somebody in your circle of influence who's a Jesus follower, and you just want to have a conversation. Not that you're better, but you feel like God's nudging you to figure out how to broach that. God, would you give us wisdom for what that looks like in the modern setting? It's not as easy today, God, where people just leave one church and go to another as someone calls them on the carpet. So there's so many factors involved. God, help us with that. Help us to figure out how to do it better. And then as you're praying right now, are there people outside these walls, friends of yours, people on your kids' sports teams or activities or neighbors? And God's bringing to your mind's eye who these people are, and you've had a hard time. You've been so uncomfortable with their sin, you haven't figured out how to win them. Because down deep, you've been judging them. Would you ask God to soften your heart towards them and to renew a passion to go out and love them in ways you never have so that you can win them to Jesus? God, show us what that looks like. God, we want to win when it comes to loving others. We want to be successful with, that, with those in the church and with those who are outside these walls. So show it to us, God. And give us the boldness and the courage to go love the way you've called us to love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.